Hey y'all, I'm Melanie. And I'm Jason. And you're listening to the Old North State Podcast. We're bringing you on a deep dive into all things North Carolina. Are you ready? Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Good evening. Good morning. Good morning. Happy day of the week. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I hope you are enjoying that day of the week. Whatever day it is. And doing whatever types of things you do on said day. Mm -hmm. So speaking of specific days of the week, so this episode will come out on um, June 25th. But I have a fun on this day for the following Monday, June 28th. Hit me. On June 28th, 1969, the first national hollering contest was held in Sampson County. Man, summer of 69. What a year. (laughs) Yeah, we went to the moon that year. (laughs) We we did go to the moon. (laughs) Thank you, even Stevens. Do you think Brian Adams was singing about this hollering festival? (laughs) (laughs) Or he's Canadian. I wonder if they had a hooting festival up there. Get it? (laughs) (laughs) The uh, annual contest was suspended in 2016. Suspended? What happened? I don't know. I guess somebody was just hollering way too loud. (laughs) Man. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. I killed the pen there. (laughs) Okay, so it says, so this was in 1969 for his prize-winning rendition of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, this man earned an appearance on the Tonight Show in a congratulatory letter from President Richard Nixon. <laughs> this is great. Wow. <laughs> Sampson County. What a what a time. What a place to be. What a place to be. What a time to be alive. Speaking of times to be alive. Ooh. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Well, last week we were hinting that this episode was going to be da bomb. Little did y'all know that it was going to be... Two de-bombs. De-nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. De-nuclear bombs. Yeah, so some of y'all may know that in the old north state, there have been a few incidences of misplaced bombs. Just a few. Just a few. Nothing to be concerned about. Yeah, nothing to be concerned about at all. We have... Uh... A handle on the situation. There's a complete uh, handle good. on the situation. Uh, How are you doing? All of us should be alive right now. W- totally. Wink. <laughs> yeah. Um, if things had gone the other direction after the incident that we're about to talk about. Um, you would not be alive. I wouldn't be alive. I would have probably been Raleigh born. Raleigh would have been a coastal town. <laughs> Raleigh would have been a coastal town. Honestly, if if I was alive, I would probably have been born with like four heads. Uh, because the radiation would have fallen on both of my parents. <laughs> yeah. And that's just simple math right there. Exactly. <laughs> two plus two equals four. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. You're going first. Oh. We just talked about this. Sorry, I forgot. So <laughs> in January of 1961, a plane crashed outside of Goldsboro, North Carolina. Three of the eight men on board died, but what the plane was carrying had the potential to kill thousands and change the entire east coast of the United States as we know it. I meant to tell you, I really liked that sentence. Thank you. I just ruined it by forgetting to read it. 
Not for me. Okay, good. Yeah, so, I was reading this at work. I was like, damn, I'm hooked. What happens next? Good. Because I try to do that, and sometimes you interrupt me, and I'm like, damn, that would have been a good moment. It's okay. So hopefully this one was <laughs> I good. I tendency to ruin those good moments. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro acted as a pilot training facility following World War II and was selected to take part in Operation Chrome Dome. <laughs> Operation Chrome Dome was a Cold War program that kept multiple B-52s in the air throughout the Northern Hemisphere 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The operation lasted from 1960 to 1968, and I will tell you at the end why, or Jason will tell you at the end why this finally ended in 1968. But by 1966, three separate missions were flying simultaneously. So there was one over the Atlantic that flew all the way just to the Mediterranean, and then there was one that flew up over Canada and over to Greenland and back. And then there was one flying over Alaska. Since this was a big, you know, Cold War thing and Alaska is two feet away from Russia. Just another one of those incidents where for those who are listening at home, um, there was a lot of hand gestures that went along <laughs> with those directions. I yeah, can't you're see. Going up. <laughs> so. I was following though. You did a great job. Thank you. So the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress is about 160 feet long with a 185-foot wingspan. It can top speeds of 650 miles per hour, quickly approaching Mach 1, or the speed of sound. Did you know that the speed of sound changes depending on your elevation? Makes sense to me. Yeah, I did not know that. So that was very fun to learn. So um, I'm sure if you get high enough, it will hit the speed of sound. But if you're close to the ground, not so much. So each plane from Johnson Air Force Base carried two Mark 39 hydrogen thermonuclear bombs, talk about some buzzwords, and would typically take a few training loops off the coast of North Carolina. It would go um, across the Atlantic to the, to the Azores, which are about 800 miles off the coast of Portugal before coming back. So the M39 bomb contained a spherical atom bomb at its tip and a 13-pound rod of plutonium inside of a 300-pound compartment filled with the hydrogen isotope lithium-6 deuteride. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm just stuck on, you know, such a, so powerful that uh, just the tip would kill you. Just the tip. But the full rod would really. Oh my God. <laughs> this is a family show, Jason. Gosh, and this is going to be like the one episode my dad listens to. <laughs> anyway, Speaking of rods, they were 12 feet long, 3 feet in diameter, and weighed more than 6,200 pounds. That's, That's a, a lot. lot of cheese. <laughs> each was built to explode in stages, with the detonation of each stage leading to the detonation of the next. So they were bombs that had never been tested before in the United States. But, of course, we were just flying them around. Just flying them around. <laughs> just to have on hand. Just, you in case know. anything weird just happened. putting two on board each of these planes, not knowing what was going to happen. Yeah, what's the worst? What's the worst what's... that could happen? Whoa. Well. <laughs> well, the night of January 23rd, 1969, was a typical North Carolina winter night. Mm. It was chilly with clear skies and light winds. Around midnight, 
one bomber had a rendezvous scheduled with a tanker for aerial refueling. So to keep the B-52s on mission, they were refueled mid-air. During the hookup, the tanker's crew advised the bomber's commander, Major Walter Tulloch, I think is how you pronounce his name, that they could see a fuel leak on the right wing. Fueling was halted and grounded, and ground control was notified. So ground control ordered the aircraft to a holding pattern off the coast until most of the fuel was consumed. So ground control to Major Tulloch? Mm-hmm. And I told you this yesterday, but I learned that uh, Major Tulloch is the grandfather to Lois Lane in the Arrowverse on the CW. Wow. Wow. What a small world. You know, I don't remember what I her remember name is. Correctly, Lois Lane's father, just in like DC superhero lore, is an Air Force. Really? General Colonel or something like that. Yeah, definitely in the Smallville wow. TV show, if you remember, if you remember that. Um, no, I remember that Lois Lane, but this is a different Lois Lane. This is a different Lois Lane. This is, well, this is a different actress. <clears throat> actress, but it would still be the same Lois. Same Lois, different actress. Anyway. Anyways, <laughs> ground control to Major Tulloch, go. So, uh, when the craft reached its holding position, which I learned a holding position is literally Jim flying in a circle. Tulloch reported that the leak had worsened and that they were having electrical problems. Within three minutes, 5,400 gallons, or 37,000 pounds, of fuel had been lost. Within three minutes. And these are Boeing B-52s, right? Yeah. They still haven't figured it out after all these years. I don't think... 60 years later, Boeing is still having major issues. Not just with these. I just... Anyway, I've got a lot of opinions. Anyway, so the aircraft was ordered immediately to return to Johnson Air Force Base. The B-52 was lined up to land on runway 26 at the base when suddenly it veered to the right and the pilots were no longer able to keep the plane stable and they lost control. The plane started rolling over and tearing apart. A few weeks before this, Boeing had realized that there was a recent modification to the fitting of the wings. So they were fitting them with fuel bladers that could cause the wings to tear off. And this particular plane, instead of grounding it, they kept it in the air, and it was scheduled for a refit, but this refit came way too late. Yeah. Yeah. And they have these two thermonuclear bombs on a plane that they're like, yeah, it's probably going to have some issues. Right. It's definitely going to need to be brought into the shop. A plane that has issues... Carrying bombs that have never been tested. Make it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so Major Tulloch ordered his crew to eject at 9,000 feet. On board the plane were eight airmen. Five successfully ejected or bailed out of the aircraft and landed safely with non-life-threatening injuries. Radar navigator Eugene Shelton ejected but was killed on landing when his parachute tangled into a tree about two miles from where the fuselage hit. Gunner Frank Barnish and wing staffer Eugene Richards were unable to exit the aircraft and died upon impact. Their remains were later recovered from the nose of the aircraft. So this next story I thought was really fascinating, which is why I threw this in here. One of the co-pilots, so there were three pilots on board. Um, Tulloch, another guy whose name I, I had it written down, but I didn't put it in here. And then Lieutenant Adam Maddox. 
Adam Maddox was the youngest man on board, and he was a rarity in the Air Force. So he was an African-American jet fighter pilot. And keep in mind, this is 1961. You know, civil rights hadn't hit yet, which we will find out about in a minute. So he knew that his only chance of survival was to pull himself through the cockpit window after the other two pilots had already ejected. So he was a very religious man. He said a prayer, and then he threw himself as far as he could out the cockpit window. He pulled on his parachute ripcord, and at first his parachute did not deploy properly. The plane exploded in midair and collapsed on his chute. Miraculously, a gust of wind slipped into his chute, causing it to reinflate and allowing him to land on the ground safely. Emphasis on the miracle part of miraculously. Yes, this this is just... Whatever he prayed worked. Whatever, yeah. I mean, this is just beyond... I think this is honestly beyond a miracle that that happened. Um, once he landed, he walked to a nearby farmhouse and asked for a ride back to the base. Upon arrival, the guards did not believe his story and arrested him for stealing a parachute. So... Talk about a bad day. Because, yeah, so he's this black man who shows up. He's in, you know, his, his Air Force gear, and he's got this parachute bundled up in front of him. The guards don't believe his story. They don't think that this happened, and they arrest him on site. It's like that scene in Independence Day where um, Will Smith crashes um, his, you know, fighter mm -hmm. jet, and he crashes the alien fighter jet, too. While he's flying over, he sees Area 51. And he has a bunch of, you know, rednecks and their campers drive him out there. And they're like, there's no way you're in the Air Force. And he pulls out his chute and underneath is the alien. And he's like, yeah, you're going oh, to yeah. let me in here. <laughs> <laughs> so when he died in 2018, he was still the only pilot to successfully bail out of a B-52 without an injection seat and survive. Which I think is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that happened. absolutely. This is, I mean, this whole story is just. Just one weird just thing. Just one after weird, another. like, bizarre miracle chance after another. Yeah, no way that's going to happen. No way that's no, going to yeah. happen. <laughs> right. No way that's going to happen. And they just keep happening. Yeah. So after the tail had ripped away from the back of the plane, the plane crashed nose first into a tobacco field a few paces away from Big Daddy's Road. Big Daddy, like uh, the Golden Girls, Blanche's father. <laughs> I laughed when I saw that. So if you watch the Golden Girls. That's country Girls, music star, Big Daddy, right? Yes, country music star. So the wreckage covered a two-square-mile area of tobacco and cotton farmland in Farrow, North Carolina, which is an unincorporated town about 12 miles north of Goldsboro. Both bombs on board separated from the aircraft as it broke up between 1,000 and 2,000 feet in the air. Within the hour, military helicopters swarmed the area with loudspeakers ordering residents to evacuate, fearful that one of these bombs was about to explode. So bomb disposal expert Lieutenant Jack Ravel was asleep at his home in Ohio when he got a phone call. So anytime that he would talk to anyone in the military, they would always speak in code. Because they weren't sure, cold you know, Cold War, they yeah. weren't sure if their wires are being tapped. But, you know, he, he was so used to these secret codes that when he woke up, he was very confused because he heard, Jack, I got a real one for you. And he had no idea 
he was about to walk into. He probably thought it was aliens. He he might have, <laughs> honestly. But we'll, we'll figure out what happened. Yeah, so the first bomb descended with a parachute that had opened up automatically. It was found intact, standing upright because the parachute got caught in a tree. The nose of the bomb had dug 18 inches into the ground. Revel said that the arm safe switch for the bomb was still in the safe position when it landed. The Pentagon later claimed that there was no chance of this bomb detonating because two of its arming mechanisms were not activated. I don't believe them. I don't believe them either. Someone from the Department of Defense also said that the bomb was unarmed and could not have exploded. Three of the four mechanisms of this bomb had activated, including deployment of 100-foot diameter parachute, causing it, the, causing it to arm itself. The, safe, uh, the safing pins that provided power for from a generator to the bomb had been removed, which prevented the bomb from exploding. These details, though, I don't... I think this whole thing is shrouded in mystery. I don't know if I believe the stuff that's uh, come out after the fact. But anyways, <laughs> um, for a Mark 39 3.8 megaton nuclear bomb to explode, a few things have to happen. First, the arming wires must be pulled, then the pulse genera generators must be activated, and the explosion explosive actuators fired. Timers must be started, the barometric switches engaged, then low-voltage batteries are activated before the last line of defense, which is the arm-safe switch, and it's controlled from within the aircraft. But first things first, they had to find the second bomb to make sure it wasn't going to detonate, the second bomb landed in a muddy field about 700 miles per hour. So this bomb almost broke the speed of sound. This bomb was going 700 miles an hour. 700 miles an hour towards the earth. Yeah. And the fact that it did not explode. I mean, just think about it. 700, that's very fast. I agree with you. <laughs> just can't deal with it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I it's in the you. past. <laughs> okay. Uh, someone was a someone was able to find a small dent in the earth where Revel took a stick and started poking around until he hit solid metal, um, which was the bomb. Crews dug a wider and wider circles for seven days, fighting snow, rain, and freezing temperatures in order to find the bomb. The bomb's tail was found about twenty feet below ground, and most pieces were recovered, but not all. The most important The most important task was finding the nuclear core because of the uranium and the plutonium it contained and the potential for radiation it could emit. If the groundwater was contaminated, it would be a disaster. On the fifth day of digging, they found it. Thank goodness. Yay. Um part part of the reason we're doing this episode is because my dad the other day, who's a pastor, included this in his sermon about the importance of little things, and because his childhood home uh, was about three miles from this, yeah. not only if the bomb went off, obviously he wouldn't have survived because it killed anyone in like 100 miles, um, but I wouldn't be here. Yeah. And if they didn't find you know, the plutonium and uh, uranium, then it would have gone into the water. Yeah. And that we whole would all, area. <laughs> we would all have like eight legs right now. Yeah. And, you know, North Carolina 
tap water isn't really known for being the purest, so I couldn't imagine. Hey, um, honestly, we could be drinking that radiation right now, and none of us would know it. We got our iodine pills. Just we do. We do have our iodine pills. That's one of the benefits of living near a nuclear <laughs> <laughs> facility. <laughs> Yes, we are in the uh, fall zone for the McGuire nuclear plant up in Lake Norman. And the town was so kind to provide us with these pills to take just in case, you know, there's a meltdown and we're unable to (laughs) drink water. We have to to get them replaced every couple of years, though. But we're good right now. Yeah. Bless. Bless. So, donning no protective gear but gloves he had taped to his sleeves, Revel retrieved the core and placed it on a military truck, which hastily took it away. He said it was glowing. It, it was wa- not glowing. Oh, he said it wasn't glowing. It wasn't hot. It was just a heavy, cold hunk of metal about the size of a volleyball. Yeah, so he didn't wear any, you know, he didn't wear like a hazmat suit or anything like that. No glasses, no face covering. He just took gloves and he taped into his sleeves. What a man. (laughs) (laughs) Very brave, that man. I wonder if they just didn't have it on site or if he was like, there's no time. They had been digging for five days. They could have gotten it by then. No excuses then. (laughs) So when Diggers found the arm safe switch, it was in the arm position. The impact of the bomb rotated its receiver to switch to the arm position while simultaneously damaging the switch contacts. In layman's terms, the cockpit switch was never turned to signal the bomb to arm, but the collision of the bomb with the ground switched it and broke it at the same time. In a 2013 interview, he said, or he remembered, the moment the switch was found, his sergeant said, Lieutenant, we found the arm safe switch, to which he replied, great. His sergeant said, not great, it's on arm. (laughs) Yeah, what are the chances? I think that's the theme. That's uh, that is not a chance that I'm willing to take again. He's like, good news, we found it. Bad news is, uh, it's not in the best condition. <laughs> not in the best, yeah, no. So declassified information from a 2013 Freedom of Information Act request showed that three of the four mechanisms on one of the bombs activated after it separated, causing it to execute most of the steps needed to arm itself and detonated. One single switch out of the four had prevented detonation. This single switch had failed 30 times before the accident on the other M39 bombs. The single switch stood between the United States and a catastrophe that would change the entire East Coast in life. Or unlife as we know it. Literally, one... You would be a single woman right now, maybe. Probably. Someone else would have snagged you up. No, I don't. But you would not have my last name. No. Um, Each of these bombs were more than 250 times that of the atomic bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were 0.01 and 0.02 megatons. These bombs were 3.8 megatons. And we were just flying them around willy-nilly in an airplane that we knew was destined to... Yes. Break up in the sky. Yeah. Just, just I just can't get I over it. I need to it. talk to someone's manager about this. <laughs> That's more firepower than the combined force of every explosion caused by humans from the beginning of time to the end of World War II. 
It was large enough to create a 100% kill zone up to 17 miles, which is roughly the size of inside Washington, D.C.'s Beltline. The radioactive fallout could have reached as far north as New York City, and that's roughly 500 miles. Bonkers. Bonkers. Absolutely right. bonkers. They're just, I just can't, I cannot. You know, I've heard other deal. podcasts talk about this, just talking about like the strange, supernatural, that type of stuff, but like, None of them were living in North Carolina, <laughs> and none of them would be like, oh, yeah, I'm out in Ohio. This probably would just be something I learned in a history class. And we're no. sitting here like, uh. <laughs> I mean, if you just sit back and you just take a minute to think about how different our life would be had one of, had one of these, just one of the bombs gone off. I mean, the, I feel like the entire world would be completely different. Yeah. Not just Do you not, think we would have blamed it on someone? Because there's no way the US would so, be like so uh <laughs> So that's one of the things. That's one of the things that I, I learned. Like they really didn't one of the things um that I was reading about was that they really only had seconds to determine, you know, is this an attack? Oh, is this I an attack? Is this an accident? Is this deliberate? Where is this coming from? You know, really, they yeah. only had minutes to decide, and had this bomb gone off, we could have started yeah. nuclear war oh, with Russia, not realizing that this was an accident. Out of retaliation for something that was our fault. <laughs> exactly, because they only had minutes to figure it out. But had one of these bombs gone off and nobody realized that this plane exploded, I mean, uh, we, the whole world could just not exist right now. Yeah, we would have come out guns ablazing. Absolutely. Russia would not exist. <laughs> There's a stain on the ceiling, and it's really bothering me as to what it is. Do you see it? No. Okay. Sorry. We're in our guest bedroom, and I'm just staring at the ceiling because I'm so mind blown. Anyway. So, in 1945, <laughs> the population of Hiroshima was 345,000. Thousand. Three hundred and forty, yeah, yeah, um, and two hundred and sixty-three thousand in Nagasaki. Between one hundred and twenty-nine thousand and two hundred and twenty-six thousand were either killed instantly or died before the end of the year as a result of the bombs. So I learned that nobody is exactly sure how many people died. Um, so the one hundred and twenty-nine thousand is a conservative number. Yeah, probably depends on who you ask. It is. It, it really is, because I look, yeah, no, that's, yeah. yeah, anyway. Those numbers, however, were because of how densely populated the areas were. In 1945, the population of Wayne County was about 84,000, and had either of the bombs, got, bombs gone off, upwards of 28,000 people would have been killed, including the bloodline on my father's side. Yeah. Excavation of the second bomb was halted after 10 days when groundwater flooding became uncontrollable. Most of the thermonuclear stage, which contains uranium and plutonium, was left. This secondary component is thought to be about 180 feet below the surface. So still. Is still hanging there? Still to this day, 60 years later. Hanging out. Sigh. Big, uh, big exhale. All right. The, the U.S. Army Corps 
of engineers purchased a 400-foot circular easement over the buried components of the bomb for $1,000. The plot is still farmed today, but workers are not allowed to dig more than five feet down or build at that site. In military lingo, there are four terms to describe mishaps of nuclear weapons. A dull sword is a minor incident involving a nuclear weapon. A bent spear is a breach in the handling of a nuclear weapon. An empty quiver is a nuclear weapon that has been stolen or lost. And finally, there is a broken arrow, which is a nuclear weapon that has somehow gone awry. This incident outside Goldsboro is classified as a broken arrow. Since 1952, the military has officially recognized 32 broken arrows. Um, there's a movie called Broken Arrow. I guarantee there is. Starring Christian Slater. Um, one of the villains is Howie, the football announcer guy. And um, I thought you were going to say Howie from the Backstreet Boys. That was a weird thing to think, seeing <laughs> as I don't know <laughs> which one is which still between the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But I'm learning. Learn today. Um, but a fun fact about Broken Arrow, and I'm getting really off topic here, is the score of that movie was repurposed for Scream 2 to be like the romance music between Dewey and Courtney Cox. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I was reading that. I was like, I can't wait to talk about this. What a fun fact that I know that probably not a lot of other people have thought about. Anyways, Operation Chrome Dome was shut down in 1968 after a similar accident happened at the Tool. Tool Air Force Base in Greenland uh, through, gosh, FOIA, um, FOIA Freedom, of, Freedom of Information Act requests journalists and author Eric Schlosser obtained thousands of pages and discovered that between the years 1950 and 1968, there were more than 1,000 incidents involving nuclear weapons. 1,000. 1,000. <laughs> None of us should be alive right now. Right. Nobody on this planet should be alive right now because of how absolutely careless. Imagine just like coming home from work and being like, honey, I just had a heck of a day. So I lost a nuclear bomb. <laughs> I'm sorry. And yeah, I still got to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> if that were you, we would have a problem. Yeah. I would just, I mean, I can't. I probably would have used those code words. I'd be like, ugh, broken arrow at work today. And I'd be like, sure, Jan. Yeah. It's nice that they have you doing archery th <laughs> at work. <laughs> I mean, just in 18 years, they had a thousand incidents. A thousand! <laughs> Gosh, I wonder what's happening, like, lately. Hopefully we've gotten our act together. No! We're still here, so. Barely! <laughs> Do you not remember the big thread over here? <laughs> Does nobody remember the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, when we almost started a nuclear war with North Korea? What happened? You don't remember that? I mean, it was Be BC. more specific. It was BC before COVID, when you know our our fearless leader was just you know tweet storming constantly about North Korea. I have a lot of repressed memories from 2016 to. Uh past few months okay well so in 2012 a historical road marker was erected in eureka just north of the crash site tilting the crash or titling, titling the crash as a nuclear mishap a mishap a big old whoopsie daisy whoopsie <laughs> in a declassified document secretary of defense rob 
Robert McNamara said that despite our best efforts, the possibility of an accidental nuclear explosion exists, and therefore he did not believe anyone other than the president should decide to launch a nuclear attack, and the recommendation for such an attack should only be given until we know the details about a given detonation. And even then, in the past few years, I don't know if the president should, seeing as the White no. House is a glorified old folks home now. Um, I don't think that, I don't. We should, we shouldn't have nuclear weapons. Nope. Man we... was not meant to have <laughs> that much power. Just because we can make it doesn't mean we should. Especially since, like, we're losing orders like DoorDash over here. Like, <laughs> right. It's like, who's oh, these things? we, we know what could happen. Let's build one that's bigger than we know what could happen. And then let's just lose it. Yeah. Let's put it on a flight pattern. And a plane that's broken. Um, <laughs> just I just see what happens. <laughs> I mean, I just and then fly it over our own country nonstop, three hundred sixty-five days a year. I mean, I I truly <sighs> hug your this... hug your loved ones. Tell your parents you love them. You never know when the you U.S. Never... is going to drop right. a bomb on your hometown. Right. <laughs> <laughs> None of us should be alive. I really, honestly, I had distrust for the government before this, but now I do not trust them. Yeah, they haven't earned it. <laughs> at all. No. I I mean, just, and that was just in the 60s. Think about now. And now I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've seen two UFOs. What if those were actually like, you know, military planes that have nuclear bombs on them? Just flying over your, um, what was it, your hometown's movie theater? No. You were on the way to movies? I was on the, we were in Concord, the second one. The uh, first one I was in Durham. Gotcha. It's hard to keep track of your UFO sightings. I've only seen two. <laughs> I have seen two UFOs, and I had witnesses to both, so I'm not crazy. And now I'm questioning whether those were military aircrafts harboring bombs. That's the question. That's the question. That is, that's the question. Just think about it. Think about it. Think about this. Think about your lack of trust for the government. And then get back to us. Or not. Keep yeah, it Yeah, so uh, rate and review. <laughs> <laughs> After you're done having an existential crisis. Yeah. Um, have an existential. Send a DM saying hello. We're here to support you. Yeah, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're clearly doing great working our way through this uh, crisis of existence and um yeah i don't think i'm gonna go over this it's it's just like watching loki oh my god what if that's what they stop stop <laughs> they already explained no, D. i Cooper. can't i can't i can't do it i can't do it all right see you folks next week where we talk about something that doesn't have to do with our state being half blown to smithereens maybe or will it we haven't stay tuned to find out Bye. Goodbye. Sources for today's episode can be found on our website at anchor.fm slash old north state pod. If you want to send us a topic suggestion, a funny story, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at old north state pod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at old north state pod. Cheers, y'all.